Welcome to Hit It, the Water Skier Magazine podcast, powered by USA Water Ski and Wake Sports, where we go on the water with some of the top athletes from three events, show skiing, barefooting, and everything in between. This episode is brought to you by Visit Central Florida, the water ski capital of the world. I'm your host, Tyler Boyd. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hit It Podcast. I am very, very excited to bring you this guest here today, and I've admired this guest for quite some time, especially as a kid growing up in the South Central region, and that guest is none other than Jay Bennett. That's right. Jay joins us here on the podcast, the world-renowned water ski coach and owner of Bennett Ski School since 1976. Hard to believe going into 2023, it's going to be 47 years and running for Jay at the ski school. We talked to Jay about so many things in water skiing, his time as an athlete, his time as a coach, his time running the ski school, the things he's seen progress in the sport. Always a wealth of knowledge when we get the opportunity to sit down and talk to Jay. We also touch on the L.A. Night Jam, and the L.A. Night Jam is going to be coming back to Bennett's Water Ski School in Zachary, Louisiana in 2023. So check out that website, lanightjam.com. Mark your calendars. But right now, sit back and relax and enjoy my interview with Jay Bennett. Well, welcome back to the Hit It Podcast. Very excited to be in the studio today. Here in the virtual studio is none other than Jay Bennett. Jay, welcome to the Hit It Podcast. Tyler, thanks for having me today. It's exciting you guys are doing this for USA Water Ski and bring so much to the table to our sport. So thank you again for doing it. Yeah, absolutely, Jay. Super excited to have you. And it's been a uh, a fun year to be on the podcast. This being the first year that we've done the Hit It podcast, it's also in the centennial year of water skiing. And so it being December when we're recording this, I would like to open up this podcast and get your thoughts on what the centennial of water skiing means to you. You know, that's a, a great question. You got to take the time to look back when we all started in the sport. And fortunately, I was been in the sport a long time, don't want to date myself too much, but it goes back to the 60s and just watching the evolution of what's happened with the sport, the growth of it, the uh, the different fingers that we have involved in the sport today, uh, the equipment, the things we came such a long way. But the thing that sticks in my mind the most is the opportunity that it gave me from a, a young junior skier, uh, didn't know what we were doing with the sport, went to tournaments and had such a great camaraderie built around people that were willing to help you and coach you and and lead you and get you involved with judging and get you involved with driving to make it a lifelong sport for yourself so uh that's what you know resonates with me the most is having those opportunities to uh be involved with the sport and have those people encourage me at a young age when my family and myself didn't know anything at all about the sport you know, you look back on the progression of the sport and one of the people that you've coached throughout the years among many, and I'm sure we're going to touch on some of those today, and we've had him on the podcast, was Freddy Krueger. And we were talking about when the inception of water skiing and talking about Ralph Samuelson and just getting up on a pair of skis and what that looked like to progress 100 years later. Uh, I told Freddie on the podcast, I said, when I think about your ski fly world record, when you just soared 
I think it was 312, 314 feet. Um, just that kind of symbolizes to me the progression uh, among a, a lot of other factors, but of how far we've come. Is there a specific moment across your journey where you look back and go, man, that was a really defining moment of water skiing? Well, I grew up and, you know, the water ski magazine was what you looked at. And you couldn't wait to open it up and, and see what was going on and see what skiers were sponsored by what companies. And so I remember when we went from the wood skis to the honeycomb skis and to the fiberglass skis, that was an incredible breakthrough. And then it just revived from that point on. Yeah, and, and also in that conversation, and I know we're going to touch a lot on jump uh, on this podcast because that's your favorite event. Just and I know you've touched the sport as a judge, as an athlete, as a coach, but even as a boat dealer, uh, to watch the evolution of the boats with the technology, even going back to the late 80s where they were jumping behind outboard engines and then it went inboard. Talk to us a little bit about the, the progression of the technology when you look back. Yeah, I was really fortunate, I think, to be involved with uh, a lot of aspects of the sport. You know, when you talk about the outboards, we had those on the tour there for a little while, but we've been with Mastercraft for a long period of time, and we had two units. We had an open bow 205 that came onto the market to, to match up with our ski boat, and it, the simplicity was there back in the day. And so to see what they do now, you know, to be honest with you, the boats now have so many, I'll call them bells and whistles, uh, you almost need to be a, an engineer to be able to run one of the boats. And now your customer base, because of all the uh, tools that are available to them, they know as much or more about the product before they come on your dealership to be able to uh, decide what they want in accessories. So it's, it's quite complex now compared to what it was, you know, when it was first getting started. Well, yeah, and there's so much experience that you bring to that conversation. I want to take a step back and I want to look at the aspects of the sport from a national level, international level, but specifically to Jay Bennett and what he's meant for the state of Louisiana. You've run your ski school out of there successfully for many of years, decades. I, I, what are you at, like 45 years? How long has the ski school been going? I was thinking about that this morning. I think this next year that we'll go into number 47, I believe. Wow. 47 years in Zachary, Louisiana, but that's not the whole story because you play a huge role in collegiate water skiing and the two dominant teams throughout the history of collegiate water skiing have been Louisiana Monroe and Louisiana Lafayette. And I wanted to get a little brief history and recap of how you got involved with those institutions along the way. The collegiate water ski thing has been something very close to my heart and we've always tried to support it. You know, it goes back even before the NLU days. We had collegiate water skiing, had a team at University of Houston, had a team at LSU, and uh, my wife was skiing out at LSU. So we had some really good competitors back there, people like Terry Everhart, which has been in our, had been in our sport for a long period of time. And uh, we had some really good teams. And then when the group got together at ULM and in the backyard of the house that they were renting, going to school over there and got started with Mike Adams and Hank Kaiser and Bill Rainwater, uh, those guys, and a year or two later, Perry Cox come into the scene. Those guys asked me to come down and help them coach. And then I became good friends with Dean Murphy, 
And then Dean Murphy at a, at a young age for me, gave me responsibilities of traveling with the team. So we watched the, the start of that uh, program and was heavily involved with it. And it was an awful lot of fun to go to that very first national championship, you know, as a team. So it started there and it's moved all the way. Uh, I had the fortunate situation to work with uh, Jim Davison. Jim Davison is absolutely responsible for making ULL program get started. And then so I've been able to bounce around a lot. And then we're really, really uh, heavily involved with all the Midwest teams because that's really the, the backbone of collegiate water scheme. We're so fortunate here at our school to have, you know, seven, eight, nine of those teams a year come to our our, our ski schools. So the Midwest is really the uh, the stable of collegiate water ski. And even though we look at the two Louisiana schools being, you know, the powerhouses and the scholarship schools. Well, and a lot of our uh, listeners are big fans of the Pro Tour and when it was hot back on hot summer nights in the late 80s and early 90s. And I remember the Tournament of, of Champions at Shreveport. And that was a tournament that you were involved in as well um, on, on many levels. We had Scott Ellis. It was our first interview ever on the Hit It podcast. And I, I, can't, I can't remember the exact name. I think it was 1990. He's a young 18-year-old. And he takes the, the professional win at Shreveport. And it just seemed like every time the Tournament of Champions would happen, world record jumps were set. People would just fly there. Tell us about that site and what it meant to jumpers. Well, what the most amazing thing about that facility was the type of crowds that it brought to the to the to the event. You know, it's it's uh, not really a private man-made lake. It was built for water skiing. It just happened to be there right in the city. You know, so and it was very very shallow, as you well know. With with all the different sites, the waters of different lakes ski different for numerous reasons, uh, depths, uh, mineral content, things such as that. But I think just the the setting, the aura of all the people on the bank and the the setting of uh, having the best at that time, the best boats, the best drivers, the best skiers is really was uh, a correlation of why all the records were set there. Yeah, that was a special tournament. I always like to pull those old tapes up on YouTube and, and look at those uh, in Shreveport. You know, Jay, you've hosted a ton of tournaments from the U.S. Nationals to the Collegiate Nationals. But there's one tournament, the L.A. Night Jam. You seem to do a little bit different than anybody else, and it's a really special tournament, uh, a unique format, a unique presentation to the spectators. Talk to us about the L.A. Night Jam and what you've been able to do there. Well, Tyler, first, thank you for acknowledging that because uh, everyone that promotes our sport has a vision of what they think would work to, to help the sport along. And so... We have been fortunate enough. We built this facility uh, with my partners to to put on events. And so we really did a takeoff of Stuart Morrison's Liquid Leisure over in England when he was the first one to actually do something underneath the lights at night. But really the process and the, th the thought came from trying to build a spectator base, have people come to the events. And as life changed for all of us, we'll, we'll, in most situations, both parents are working, you come to the weekend, you're trying to go out and use your boat during the day, you're trying to take care of the house, you're doing the things you need to do during the day, but then at night you're looking for entertainment. It's kind of like a dinner and a movie type situation for all families. So we created Night Jam here and had a, and we've had an incredible amount of success and an incredible amount of backing from 
the local city and the state to make this event into a popularity event. So my theory to get to what you're kind of talking about is I believe we've got to create a spectator base for our sport like we used to have back in the day. If you go back to tournament champions in the middle of 95 degree weather, you would see 10,000 plus people sitting on the bank watching water skiing. So we're really fortunate and happy to try to create a spectator base here in the little town of Zachary. People come out and, you know, we get several thousand people out here for the event. And then the other side of the coin is it is a pro water ski jump term, no doubt about it. But we try to add other activities, other water sports, other things like skydivers and hot air balloons and things like that to make it a festive uh, environment. But the key to it is it's about a three hour show. The gates open, the people come in, they're enjoying the music, enjoying the typical Louisiana lifestyle, and the show's over in about three hours. And I think that's the real key. Yeah, no, interesting, Jay. I actually remember, too, in those Shreveport, when you talk about getting the spectators involved and all the spectators that were on the side of the shore, even going back to those times in Shreveport, you'd have guys like Scott Pelton who were blistering across the water. I remember the announcers saying heat on the feet in Shreveport. I, I don't know what he was going at, 70 miles an hour across the water, and then he would pull his parachute as he would barefoot and slide down. It sounds like you've incorporated some of those into the program but um i guess does the program kind of have these special things on the forefront and then as it progresses leads into women's jump and then men's jump as the grand finale that's exactly what we do and that's a great point which you just brought out we used to incorporate some of that even in the u.s open and the u.s nationals in 1989 here at our lakes we had Scott Pelleton, and he ran, give you, this will blow your mind, on our lakes, he ran 89 mile an hour. Oh, my goodness, 89. So even back then, we had <laughs> other activities to display our sport to the spectators. Wow. I, I've always wondered what that number was. I've seen the video. I didn't know that the number was 89 miles an hour of what he was blistering across the water. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, let's let's take a look at where we're at in three event skiing a lot of our listeners participate slalom trick and jump you've seen the evolution of technique for a long time i think that technique you can't leave out of the conversation obviously the equipment changes when we even look at moving materials such as fiberglass to carbon fiber but the cruise control systems to tracking the boat within the course is is technology been more of the driver to new technique or has it been just the evolution of how people stand on their skis or things the athlete can control in my opinion the equipment and we'll start with skis first and predominantly slalom skis uh if you remember and it goes back to when you were starting skiing the, the equipment that we had a skier had to move on his ski a lot more to be able to get it to turn, to get it to accelerate, to get it to create angle, to do the things we needed to do to be really good in the slalom course. So now with the technology that we have with the skis, when it's set up correctly, you really are trying to eliminate motion. You're trying to stay as still as you possibly can. And that's a big difference because we really had to move around on the ski to make them do what we wanted to do. Also, back in, you know, not that long ago, all the skis would be uh, 
for no, no better word to say, they'd be hand tuned. They'd be mm-hmm. it would be uh, filed on and they'd be sanded on and and bindings be moved around. But even today with the technology, in my personal opinion, and we have so many amazing good coaches out there nowadays, but I believe your binding placement is by far the first thing you look at and you really pay attention to that. You have a standard wing and thin setting to go with and then make sure that binding's in the right place because that's crucial. That's interesting. And I haven't thought about that in a long time when it came down to filing skis. And I, I think a lot of our listeners would remember those days in which uh, you would have a couple of skis, you know, two or three skis in which not only were you attesting the fin adjustments and moving around the wing and the angles there and the depths of the fin, but a big thing was the bevel. And it was not uncommon for people to just go with a piece of sandpaper to the side of their ski. I think when skis started to become a little bit more expensive and you were dealing with carbon fiber materials, the accuracy in which those skis were laid up really increased. We, we don't see too many people going to skis with files anymore. I would like to take a look at uh, the LaPointe ski, though, because uh, Bob and Chris LaPointe are notorious for tweaking skis and coming up with a layup. Do you think when you look across slalom skis through these companies, is there still something to figure out that we're missing of how a ski accelerates or turned, or are we kind of hitting the pinnacle of that? Well, in my opinion, we we're fortunate in the sport that we've got those kind of people that are going to always try to make it better from an equipment standpoint. So the experimentation will, I don't think it will ever come to an end. A uh, percentage of that would be on the marketing side of the equation, but it's true in, in the core of the skis and what they're doing with the flex patterns and the rocker and, and the beveled edges, I don't think that will ever come to an end. Now, whether we're starting to get to a point that is going to be standardized a little bit more. I would say no, because if you look at other sports like snow skiing and things such as that, there's so much more to learn. And in water skiing, especially slalom skiing, we're dealing with hydraulics. So uh, I think you'll see, uh, I think you'll see continued uh, progression in the construction of the skis and the materials they use on the inside. Very cool. That's that's certainly exciting to look forward to. I wanted to get your take on the women's tricks event. Um, in recent years, uh, there's been ski, good skiing across the board on all three events, but the Women's Tricks event has really come into its own of being super competitive and super competitive at a high level. Like I'm reading right now, uh, you know, Erica Lang has that record with 11,260 points. I think that's the most recent revision, unless something's out there uh, pending. What have you seen from the ladies that have really brought the level of their skiing up? I mean, right now, they're only roughly 1,500 points behind the men when it comes to a world record. You know the answer to the question of why these scores have gone up are the consistency in learning all the new flips. But as an athlete, whether it's a female or a male athlete, the amount of time that they're spending off the water in getting stronger physically and doing the gymnastic type moves and the work that they're doing on trampolines and things such as that, uh, even in an intermediate level of water skiing, both on female and male side, you'll see uh, young skiers doing incredible flips at a young age mm. where where you and I come from with wake five backs and wake five fronts and things <laughs> such as that. They struggle with doing those. 
So I think the off-water conditioning of especially the females, uh, any pro athlete now is spending a tremendous amount of time off off water as well as on the water. And then add it back into all the amazing coaches that you have out there. And we have some incredible uh, coaches that can teach these tricks and teach the physics behind it and, and the body position. Not one of my strengths as a coach. I try to keep up with it best I can, but uh, there's some really incredible things going on out there from a coaching standpoint with tricks. I wanted to get your take on world record. Everything seems to need to be perfect to break a world record, and they're way out there. And and specifically, I wanted to talk about the jump world record. Uh, your site at one time uh, had that record. I believe Jimmy Seamers broke that world record back in the 2000s. Um, the current record is 254 feet by Ryan Dodd. Um, I, if I if I had my opinion, I think 260 is definitely doable. But talk about all the factors that need to be in place to fly that far, the conditions. I think even I show up to a site and I say, okay, well, there's a headwind. Maybe it's eight, nine miles an hour. But I don't even know if that would be the ideal win that you would need to go that far. What type of conditions and what would it require of the athlete to take a new jump world record down and possibly go 260? Well, I sport being slalom, trick, and jump. When you look at jump, statue is is very important. Lower center of mass, uh, the power of the skier. We will continue to get these boats to perform better as they continue. You see how we've increased the horsepower in these boats uh, year after year after year, and that's a big portion of it. The rules that we have to abide by can create some limitations. We're starting to really have uh, a lot tighter tolerances on the on the jump times, slalom, of course, but jump what we're talking about right now. But I think it's the physical element as well as the equipment. You're going to probably see as the skier gets stronger, you're going to be able to handle more horsepower. You're going to be able to handle bigger skis. And then I think the evolution of trying to understand the aerodynamics of what's the best situation like you're talking about with headwinds, tailwinds, those type of situations. We know right now today that a stronger headwind, uh, the guys can handle it because of their mass and the girls is really not a, a big advantage to them if the headwind gets too strong. So those are things that will play in into the overall picture of breaking the world record again. And I do agree with you. Uh, if you look what some of the guys have done uh, on a five and a half foot ramp as far as going 200 feet, you're going to see the girls. We know descent is going 202. There's going to be other ones come up and they're going to be able to do this as they become stronger and more knowledgeable of the techniques. And 260 is not out, out of the, out of the uh, picture whatsoever, in my personal opinion. That's great. I, I mean, I'm I'm pumped up. I want to be there that the, the athletes see the right conditions and the right wind or in, in that type of shape to be able to take down that world record. And that's kind of where I want to go to in this next part of the podcast is I know that in more recent years, you've had a little bit more time to kind of coach, maybe coach selectively some athletes uh, to really get them uh, to a level to accomplish their goals. And the training that is required to uh, get an athlete to become a world champion or break a world record is different from a lot of training. I, I, mean, I say it all the time on this podcast, uh, the goals of becoming a regional champion, 
national champion and world champion and what is required along those steps and the amount of dedication. When I'm talking to someone like you, I would really love to get your insight on what you're looking for as far as athletic ability, but also a personality trait where you see something in someone to say, you know, that's a person that can take it all the way to the top level. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what you're finding now is the physical aspects of a competitor of having the proper DNA to get the strength they need, but we're working probably off the water now, especially in a jump event, harder than we are, or at least equally to the amount of time that we're working on the water. And then there's so many factors. That's a great question. So many factors. You've got to have that determination and that willpower. Probably the biggest thing in the world that you've got to have the right support group. It one person, one athlete, one coach, they don't do it without the support team. You've got to have good boats, good drivers, good facilities, and the off the water training becomes so much more important or equally important as the on the water training to build the strength and power it needs to break these records. You know, it's interesting right now. I have uh, twin boys that are five and my daughter's three. We've learned to get up on skis. Uh, it's been cool. The family's been behind the boat all at once to get a picture. So that was really fun. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what they can do in the sport. One of the things that I've noticed, though, of being a parent is uh, of three different of three kids, they all have different personalities. And you have coached so many different people and seen so many personalities. Now, one personality might be completely different than another personality, but that doesn't mean that one personality is kind of the silver bullet to make a, a, a national or a world champion. How have you been able to adjust throughout the years to personalities? Because you're one of the greatest coaches in our sport that we've seen. I related to someone like Nick Saban at uh, the University of Alabama in football. He has this huge football team, uh, recruits throughout the entire country, a bunch of personalities, but year after year after year, he seems to find a way to win, and he seems to find a way to win at the highest level. How do you look at that, and how do you adjust your own coaching style to meet their needs? You know, you hit on a good point because each person has a different uh, mentality, a different way that they accept your uh, instruction a different way of trying to figure out what works best for each one of those people. And so you were also asking about, are there natural athletes? Uh, just a natural athlete can just go out there and do anything that they want to do, kind of like the way we see Joe, Joel Poland, or athletes that just have that heart to really be able to train and work and get stronger. So because I've been doing it for such a long, long time, I can use a few examples. Sherry Sloan, uh, who broke the world record, back in her career, she was not a natural athlete. She had to work incredibly hard on and off the water, even back then, to be able to have the ability and the physical ability and mental ability to be able to uh, break a world record. And then, you know, Freddie, I was fortunate to have Freddie here on staff and we, we're still close. We still talk a lot. We still throw ideas around. A lot, a lot of things are on the outside of the water ski thing, but, you know, he, it, in my opinion, considered a, a natural athlete. You know, you could get him on a basketball court and the guy can dump a basketball. And he just came out of the Midwest and he was in college, you know, going to school here at LSU after he left ULM before he really started 
prospering in his skiing and going back to tournament champions, that's the very first pro tournament that he won coming out of nowhere. Nobody even really knew who he was, you know? And so then I go, to, I'll use my daughter as an example. And she is a, did very, very well and just absolutely natural. Everything came so easy to her. And sometimes maybe that's not the best situation. Maybe it's a better situation when you have to work harder. And now I'm having, uh, you know, my wife was an example. Nobody knows Anne's track record. But, I mean, in the veteran water ski world, she's won five world titles. And nothing natural about her. She gets it through really hard, hard work at, at an amateur level. And, you know, off the water, unbelievable with the CrossFit stuff. So, and the person I work with the most now is, is Hannah Strasova. And Hannah's kind of middle of the road. She is incredibly uh, committed to the sport. That's all she's ever done is train for water skiing. You know, as far as natural abilities, maybe some in jump, not as so much in tricks. Has to work really hard in tricks and slalom. Five foot three statue in slalom kind of slows that up. So what you're hitting on is it just depends on all the pieces of the puzzle that it takes. The financial backing, the support group, being able to and the thing we haven't touched on is injuries. Mm -hmm. This high-end skiing that these guys are doing, slalom, trick, and jump, at any point in time, they can have a serious injury that can set them back for a year or even take them out of the sport. So that's, the, that's a big factor when you lose that time from an injury. And, and you're right. Sometimes you just can't bounce back from some of those injuries, especially in the jump event where it demands so much of your body. But it is it is amazing to recap the people that you have coached. I mean, I remember coming to your ski school a long, long time ago and seeing the big sign for Sherry Sloan and being able to see, you know, Sherry compete on the pro tour and all of those things. I, I tell you this every time I see you. One of the most motivating things for me was that I never got the opportunity because of just the way my life went. But uh, I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had uh, really cool posters of your staff. Some of those posters are just unbelievable of who you had on staff. I mean, it was like the dream team, and they would walk around in pro staff shirts. When you look back at all of the people that have come through your ski school, are you just in awe sometimes that you've got to experience it all? You know, you just kind of live in the moment. And what you're saying about the, the different years, it kind of all runs together for me, unfortunately. And one of the things I always said I wish I would have done from the very start, we were very, very small and we grew into a, a, a large uh, operation, but I wish I would have kept good notes of who those staff people were and where they were from and what they did and what they accomplished. That would have been a lot of fun to be able to look at nowadays. And, and at this point, it's, you know, employee-wise for that many years, it's probably 250, 300 people at that point in time. And we have been fortunate to have some of the best skiers in the world come here and ski with us. And I can't, you know, you put together a support group. I cannot claim that all those guys came here to be able to ski with me because that would be a very false statement. But they do, I do put together staffs where they can work together, they can ski together, kind of like a pyramid effect. I'm there if you need me, I'll help you if I can. But you know, the one-on-one -on -one coaching now, since I, my, my daughter and son-in-law have the boat business and we moved to where I didn't have the workload, it put me in a situation where I could start doing more coaching. So it's been fun to get back into it. You've mentioned it a couple of times and it's the support group. And oftentimes when I interview athletes or you're really our first coach that we've interviewed, 
it comes back to this idea of a support group, right? And that support group usually means uh, it's it's this family sport, whether that's you know our biological family or our our broader family as the water ski family. But just like I I picture it, and I wonder if you picture it the same way, kind of when you look at NASCAR or something like that, where you have this support group on the side that you run so many laps, they they help you change their tires, you're they're coaching you all the way through the entire race. Uh, when it comes to skiing and I'm right there with you, the support group is so important because you not only need them to get to the lake, have the boat ready, have gas in the boat, all of the things that you're you're now kind of going into with the off-water training, how important it is to be on that and to be on a program. When you look at a support group, where where a lot of these athletes are getting to you after they've progressed to a certain point, where do you see that role in that progression as part of that support group for that athlete? Well, when you take an athlete that's already got a certain amount of experience and you are talking about technique on the water, we're going to go, I'm going to talk about two different phases, but we talk about technique on the water. Sometimes you've got to work within that framework of what they've already established. Sometimes it's really hard to make major changes or actually mold them into the exact person or technique that you want. So you have to be careful with that because everybody doesn't do it the same way and success doesn't come the same way for everybody. But I think probably with support group and the, my strength, there's something like I was telling you earlier, so many coaches that are so good with their technique. I believe it's very, very important to have that uh, rapport with the person you're working with that you can spend that one-on-one -on -one time off the water. The off-the-water things that you're doing from a sports psychology standpoint and the workout programs and things like that, to me, is where the strength comes in. How do you get a practice performance in a pro event or in a national event or in a major tournament that means the most to that person? We can go through cycles. We know the basics of that. But when you're a pro skier, you need to do it week in and week out. So taking a skier and getting that practice performance in a pro event or in a tournament when you need it the most is really a key that that a lot of people struggle with and being able to have that success yeah that's well said and that's hard to do is take practice to to be your ideal in a tournament and there's nothing better than being a coach i would think and and seeing someone go and get a personal best in a big tournament because that's when everything comes together. I want to change the context of your coaching in just a little bit. We spoke about the individual athletes and how you uh, gear them up or get them in a cycle to achieve. But what about your experience of being a team coach for Team USA? I know you've been part of you know Pan Am Games and those types of things. This is kind of a different situation in which a bunch of athletes that you may have heard of or know of but not necessarily have skied with you are now kind of under your purview to get ready for a tournament like that. How do you approach that type of situation? Well, now it's really changed from back, let's say in 1990, 1991, 1991, uh, we went to Austria. I was fortunate enough to be able to coach the US team there. You, you really did coach. You would have training camps a week or two ahead of time in that country. And it was one-on-one -on -one coaching, and you you actually had water time with with those people. 
now when you take a team recently most recently was i went to the pan am games and i went took the team and i'd been working with uh taylor uh garcia and i've been working with with regina and i knew all the skiers but you're really there as a support person back again you're there to accommodate them to make them feel or give them the needs that they need to be able to perform in that event you're doing less coaching far as technique is concerned and there to support them and make sure that they're comfortable and maybe say the right words that they need before they go on the water that that's the real difference in what happens now when you take a team as a coach as as back in the day when we you know literally had weeks that we did training prior to the big events yeah that's interesting i think of like the team usa basketball team for example they come from all different teams in the professional level and then all of a sudden have to compete at an olympic level it seems like the camaraderie of what happens in those few weeks or months that cycle up to that tournament is so important but i think jay it sounds like that might even play more into your strengths because the psychology of approaching that tournament there's not much to really discuss from a technique standpoint unless somebody is struggling it sounds like it's more about psychological strategy and how to approach it and how to approach it as a team. Talk to us a little bit about that, because skiing, for the most part, is an individual sport. And outside of the collegiate realm and outside of the World Championship or the Pan Am, there's not many times to get experience of, oh, my score not only counts for myself, but it counts for the team that does bring a different psychological effect to an athlete if they're not familiar with that situation. Tell us about competing in water skiing from a team standpoint. Yeah, we're very individualized with our sport, and then we throw a group together and you know, decide we've gotta be a team. I think the most important thing for a coach to do when you're in those situations is try to communicate, try to listen to that skier, see what's on their mind, see if it's a little technique point that you can give them on the water about what they're doing with their slalom trick and jumping uh anything you can make them more comfortable with to be able to get that performance and also you know we always have preliminary rounds and we have final rounds and a lot of times the team the team is wins after the preliminary rounds so it's very important to be consistent so i think listening to each individual talking to them about what their needs are and trying to figure out the best way to get their performance you know, without getting too heavily involved with putting a bunch of technique in their mind, which they already know what they're trying to do. To take a step back, to ask you one more question about technique, and I'm sure you get this question a lot. When somebody is in a slump, they just can't figure it out, right? Uh, they were skiing really good. You know, they're passing on every jump. They can't figure out their timing. Uh, they're falling in the slalom course. They're falling in the trick run. And they come to you and say, hey, Jay, I don't know what's going on. It's been weeks and I skied bad in this tournament, can't practice, can't do anything. Where do you even start when an athlete approaches you like that? So here's what needs to be done. It's hard for a competitor to want to back up, especially even a few days before a big event. But the only way you ski out of a slump is to go back to repetition. You try to take the pressure of a performance off their plate and get back to doing the basics. Give you an example. Things aren't going well, back to jumping, because you know how much I love jumping. And you're pushing hard and you're trying to get your, your longest jump and it's three days before the world championships. I wouldn't hesitate 
then I don't hesitate to put that jumper back into a single cut. Go all the way back to the basics, back up, get into vibe with repetition, take the pressure off of performance, and just do what you need to do to get your feet back under you. Tricking, quit trying to do the trick run. Just go back to doing pieces of the trick run. Start linking things together. Do the tricks that you're capable of doing and just put those pieces back together. Like rather than a 20 second trick run, do a 30 second trick run, those kind of things. Slalom, I am really big on back to backs. Regina, when she first started skiing with me, is laughing at me. She said, I've never done back to backs in my life. I said, Well, you're going to do back to backs if you want me to coach you. And we had a big laugh about it. And now she understands why I like to do back to backs. So always back up. We're always moving forward, especially right before competition. We're always very performance orientated before competition. You got to get back to the fundamentals. You got to get back to doing the technique that helps you get those performances and get your eyes off the performance. Yeah, and I just wanted to remind our listeners a really good video of Jay coaching Regina through the crane drill. And Jay, you've been a big fan of the crane drill for quite some time. It's actually on YouTube under USA Water Ski, and you walk anyone who wants to view that video through it. And I go back to the crane drill all the time, just not not only to think about technique, but also to think about strength. And in my latter years, I'm doing more slalom skiing than anything. But what I've found with the crane drill is, even across all three events, if I feel strong doing that, it helps everything because it helps my balance, it helps my strength. And so I really appreciate you putting that video together and I urge our listeners to go check that out. Jay, your ski school, like you said, 47 years. Um, what are you guys doing in December? You know, uh, there's very little going on in December and we started kind of actually shortening our season of how how long we're open now doesn't mean there's not skiing going on here and also once again with the ski school I, I can't impress upon you enough about how important the support group is and i mean that's my staff that i hire because we run a large ski school and i'm not the one coaching the students it's my staff coaching the students so it's so important to make sure everybody stays on the same page it's so important that we have uh, a lot of staff meetings, so everybody stays on the same page, but those guys have to support each other. You know, we always talk about this. I learned this a long time ago when I was first getting involved with water skiing by all my mentors. It takes three to ski. You got to have a driver, you got to have a judge, and you got to have a skier. Well, we say you got to have a driver, you got to have a coach, and you got to have a skier. So it's very important to for them to work together like that. So that, that's a big deal that helps us keep our consistency here by running such high volume. When you look forward into 2023, what's kind of on the plate for Bennett's Water Ski School and maybe the things that you'll be hosting at your site? That's uh, pretty cool in the fact that we built the site a long time ago to be able to have events. Uh, we don't have quite as many events that we used to have. Of course, Night Jam is the number one thing on the plate this year that we're going June 10th for Night Jam and, and uh, working now already and from a sponsorship standpoint because it takes quite a bit of funds to be able to put a pro event on. And, uh, you know, we, we won't get too far away from collegiate water skiing because it's so fun. We'll have to see what happens. I, I think we've done like nine collegiate national championships. And I wow. Think, I think 10 getting pretty close. So we'll have to wait and see if when we do the next one of those. 
but uh, we built a facility to do events and it's fun to, to have the tournaments. Uh, I wish I could get back to having the energy to do more of the grassroots stuff because I think it's so important for our sport, but uh, for the growth of the sport, but uh, the way we are right now, it's kind of doing the things that, that, that complement our staff and the people that work for us and the thing, the events that they want to be involved with. After 47 years, Jay, it still sounds like you're going pretty strong. I, you know, I, I think of collegiate skiing, 2018, you were inducted to the Collegiate Hall of Fame. I mean, you mentioned it almost going to be 10 times that you've hosted collegiate nationals and then the history that dates all the way back to uh, your involvement of getting the team started there in Louisiana, specifically uh, Louisiana Monroe or NLU at the time. But also you received the award of distinction from USA Water Ski back in uh, 2010. When you look at your career right now, and it's obviously been capped off starting in 2010 with such an honor as that. Uh, all the way to 2018, where you're inducted to the Collegiate Hall of Fame. What do those awards mean to you? Well, very humbled to be able to be recognized for uh, being involved in our sport and and, uh, and having those accomplishments. The one thing I always say about awards, they're really nice to have and they're very appreciative, but there's so many people that are equally uh, qualified and equally in the same same category as you are that never do get one of those awards. Those those are things I always keep close to my chest, knowing how fortunate I am and humbled to be able to, to receive those type of awards. Well, certainly well-deserved with those awards, Jay. And uh, this has been an incredible interview. And I would like to give you the opportunity to kind of hand it to you to, to where people can find you. Um, can they email you, call the ski school? Uh, find you on social media, where's the best place to find you? Well, from the ski school standpoint, my wife is the the machine that runs the, the paperwork, the booking of the students, the answering all the questions for the parents to make sure they're comfortable with what we do here. Uh, email is the easiest way. Uh, it's jay at ski, S-K-I, Bennett's, B-E-N-N-E-T-T-S.com. And we got several websites. We got Bennett's Boat and Ski, Bennett Water Ski School, and stay tuned to the website that we'll be launching again for LA Night Jam because that's our, our baby and we're excited about it. Awesome. Well, and that's one we're not going to want to miss. And so, Jay, it's been a pleasure that you've jumped on this podcast and so excited to launch this podcast. And I'm sure at some point in the future, we'll have you back on this podcast. And I look forward to seeing you in 2023. Well, thank you for having me, and I, I want to tell you thank you for what you do for the sport. I remember when you came to the ski school as a young lad. Uh, you and I were talking the other day. Thirteen years you've announced the Masters. I can't believe it. You know, I'm dating myself every time we have a conversation. But uh, thank you for what you do and continue to support it. You know, a ULM alumni and, and uh, such an incredible national champion. you got an awful lot to be proud of with you and your family. Well, thank you so much, Jay. Coming from you, that means a lot. And until next time, well, I guess we're signing off. All right. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for listening and come back and catch future episodes as we chat with water ski legends and current stars from each of the sports disciplines as we celebrate 100 years of water skiing. Thanks again to our sponsor, Visit Central Florida. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We'll see you next time.